Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We interrupt the interview briefly for a word for our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by M6 Motors. Located in Banderslow in County Goa, M6 Motors brings a combination of value and innovation to their renowned car sourcing. With unbeatable quality, prices and service, backed up with a name you can trust. You can call them at 090-96-45801 or follow them on social media at M6 Motors on Facebook or Instagram or call in store today. Now back to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the third edition of the My Life in Rugby podcast series. My guest today is former Sale, Connacht, Leinster and Ireland hooker and former Grenoble and Dragons head coach Bernard Jackman. Bernard has spent over 20 years as a player and coach in the professional game and has now turned his hand to punditry, where he's a mainstay and lead analyst on both TV and podcasts. It's fair to say that Bernard has already quite amassed the life in rugby. So first of all, welcome to the pod, Bernard. Thanks for coming on. No, thank you. Sorry it took so long to, to get it organised and a bit of Wi-Fi problems this morning, but um, no, we're, we're cracking on regardless. No worries, it happens to the best of us. Um, first first and foremost, I just when I was looking up, you're nearly five years removed from the pro game. Do you miss it at all, or are you kind of glad you got out when you did? Yeah, I don't miss it one bit, but it's probably a bit easier for me because I'm still active in it if you get me um so for example friday night good friday i'll be in the viva for rt so i'm getting that hit of you know professional sport rugby on a pretty much weekly basis whether it's co-com whether it's pitch side whether it's studio um i'm getting to do some pieces with players you know through my Calling with the Sun Independent, or I'm emceeing some events with players and coaches. So I'm, I'm still kind of I'm not in that bubble of my I'm making my career out of or getting my paying my mortgage from professional rugby. But um, I'm probably next best thing in that I'm still very close to it. Uh, I, I don't think and I still love the game. So I, and I'm um, so if I was detached from it, I think. I would miss it maybe, but uh, I think I've got the best of both worlds now. I've got more stability um, 
and you know uh, more security and can decide where I want to live rather than basically be worrying about you know results or you know a change of CEO or whatever and having to potentially move my family so um, no I'm, I'm very happy that's that, that's that's the main thing like because of course a lot of coaches players they leave it and they're kind of I'm not saying they're disconnected with the game but they're not as happy as maybe five years before they retired so the fact you have a bit a nice balance because there's obviously amateur game coaching and there's punditry and all that it's probably yeah. as you said the best of both worlds really yeah like I'm getting my coaching his invective um on a Tuesday Thursday um I'm doing a little bit kind of director of rugby in, in, in Prez Bray uh started that in September um so I'm getting to work with some you know younger younger rugby players there um and then I'm getting obviously the podcasting and uh, and the, the the other media um pieces that I do obviously writing and, and, and TV and radio is is great and I think that's the biggest issue I think you know there's a lot of um, a lot of talk or, or better understanding now of that difficulty of transitioning from playing professionally and, and I think that's why a lot of players struggle obviously there's a, for most there's a drop in income um, but a lot of them just miss the buzz of the dressing room they miss the buzz of match day and it's very difficult for them whereas I suppose I went probably into I went into coaching and then I, obviously I went into media um, but I was always attached to the game I always kind of had a dressing room or a team so for example you know tomorrow night in, in the Viva I'll be part of a team in RT trying to you know um, tell the story of the game um, in the 42 with the lads I'm part of that team you know trying to produce a decent podcast so um, that's important for me um, I haven't I, and I probably have more teams now than I had when I was playing so gives me access to to build a relationship with more people yeah and that's and that's listen it is about the relationships and the the team element is covered as well but kind of going back to the very beginning now like growing up in in rural Ireland was rugby ever really a thing for you or did you just kind of stumble into it in no, growing up it. yeah it wasn't a thing at all I mean we were well my, my dad would have no interest in any sport really he was a workaholic um, my mum would have liked a bit of sport I would have been playing Gaelic for my village team um, no hurling down or just Gaelic played soccer at lunchtime in school or in breaks um, I remember the odd six five nations game being on on a Saturday um, on a TV and my mum my auntie watching that uh, and, and me having a look but not really understanding it but then I was sent. I was sent to boarding school in Newbridge College at twelve, and um, obviously rugby is the the main sport there. They play rugby exclusively from September to to March, and it's compulsory in first year. So, and I would have played it anyway. It wasn't going to be compulsory, but um, that's where I got my first exposure to that. But uh, there was rugby in Tullow Rugby Club, but I'm kind of I'm ten miles away from Tullow Rugby Club. Really, I wasn't really on my radar, um, and yeah, now obviously I think. If you're, if I was growing up again, where I where I grew up, there'll be a, a development officer from the Leinster branch coming into the school playing tag, or, or it's just way more. You know, there'll be games on TV, provincial games on TV, or URC, and I would have had more exposure to it. But realistically, back in you know 1980, you know to 88 or whatever, um, it, it just wasn't really on my uh, on my horizon at all. But going to school. 
um, that gave me the opportunity to play it. And you know, thank thankfully, I had that opportunity because it's a game that I love immensely. And that's good. And then, like as as you said, the times and the year has changed. So I would have had you know the odd development officer and kind of coming into primary school and a little bit different. So I went to secondary school in, in Garbley, which is a rugby yeah. school. So it's a little bit different there, but in primary school, they come in now and it's even growing up, you know, you would have had Munster's Heineken Cup, year Heineken Cup wins, they would have been on telly and it was it was bigger, but it's easy to forget that the players who got us to that point, it wasn't as big of a thing. Because even in the 90s, Irish rugby wasn't in a great pay- great place. Like. No, it wasn't at all. And, and um, like, when you see... When you see us winning double grand slams um, this year, and you know, obviously hoping that we have a team that we can, um, we can continue to be successful with. Certainly, the under twenties look like they're going to be strong next year and, and foreseeable future. It has changed massively because we were under uh, under resourced or under strength, you know, in, in, compared to the the Welsh, the Scots, the English, and the French, and, and um, in the in that Six Nations and. Um, yeah, any any bit of success, any win at all was was celebrated massively and was it was a big achievement. Um, so we are very lucky now that the the the, the amount of players playing rugby in Ireland has has, has shot up the the competition to get back to try to become a professional rugby player is is harder than ever, and we're you know we have a lot of elite level players in this country, so we're very lucky. That's and like it's it's kind of ironic too how the country that was nearly dragged kicking and screaming into the pro game is probably the country that has the most figured out right now. Maybe yeah, aside yeah. from France, but it's it's a bit different. Yeah, no, I think us and France are probably in the best position. I think in terms of stability and, and financially, um, like I remember, I, I benefited from World Rugby deciding that the game should go pro because the RFU voted no um, at that. At that vote after the World Cup in South Africa, and um, I remember the time. I remember when Warren Gatland offered me my first contract. I was about to go to Japan for a year with college, and I was studying that international marketing Japanese in DCU. And I had to go to Japan for my third year, six months of college, six months of work. And Warren Gatland sat down with me, and he, he offered me a contract. And he said, "Look, at, um, nobody knows if rugby's going to stay pro. You know, um, at the start, it was very much divided." about what countries wanted to become professional. Um, the countries who didn't want to become professional lost the vote, but there was still that feeling that, you know, after a year or two, they could go back to amateurism. So he he said to me, look, you could be one of only 20 players in Ireland who are professional rule players ever, uh, because the first year they only gave out five full-time contracts in each province, um, and the rest of the lads were part-time. So he said, look, if you take this contract and, and it goes back to being amateur, you'll have that, you know, um, experience of being one of only five kind of men who were professional that that year, um, and likewise, you said if you go to Japan and it ta- and it takes off while you're in Japan, you know you're going to come back and be forgotten about. So um, it was anybody. He also said to me, "Look, I understand education is important. I understand this is a big risk." And he let me transfer into a different course in in DCU, and we made it work. So um, yeah, even people. Who have like like Warren Gatland, who um, has benefited from professionalism a lot, was unsure about whether it was all viable or not. And that, and that's the thing no one really knew. And then like kind of when you were coming through, then the early days of kind of in that pro era, and then 
when you got your stint at Sale, was there much of a difference between the two? Because obviously the Premiership then was much stronger than it is now, respective to teams like Connacht. Yeah, look, I think I think the competition structure changed, and it's still been changing, as you know. Like the URC, as we now know it, is a relatively new format, just the second year. As it is, they're still tinkering with the, with the Champions Cup, um, whatever, 25 years on. So um, at the start, there wasn't enough professional games, uh, in my opinion. Um, the Celtic League was a bit of a mishmash. And actually, I think that first year I played more games for my club than I did from, from my province. Not because I wasn't uh, selected. It was just that was the nature of the competition. It was a very condensed season. Um, so, uh, yeah, and... To be honest, the Irish problems were very slow to, to get their act together. Um, and, and probably that's ha- half the reason why, after two years in Connacht, uh, I got an opportunity to go to Sale Sharks in Manchester. And um, I finished my degree and I, and I took that opportunity because I felt the competition structure there was much much better. I felt I could just concentrate on being a professional rugby player for Sale, whereas in Connacht, I was kind of, as with Sale, uh, with Connacht for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I was with Clontarf for for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and uh, because as I said, when see, when I wasn't playing for Connacht and Connacht didn't have matches, you were very much in the hands of the club. And and um, yeah, I took it. I took uh, an opportunity to go to the UK just to experience that that Premiership. And was it, I suppose, by the time you come back to Connacht and then on to Leinster, was it something that at a young stage of your career would have developed, or would you even attribute? the fact that the AIL, that you were playing more games AIL before you went to the Premiership, was that nearly as helpful as Anthem before you went to sale? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I've got my opportunity through the AIL. I wasn't an Irish schoolboy or an Irish um, under 20 initially. I, I, I got in through playing very well for Clontarf um, and the, the club game was a huge part of my development. And was, to be honest, was when I came back from sale um, because it was really only when I went to Leinster in 2005, at that stage, that the, the, the first choice players for the provinces really didn't play for the club anymore. You know, it took that long to um, to get that fixture list for the professional teams right. Um, so you didn't need to go back to your club to, to get game time. Uh, obviously, still players, some players were going back, but um, if you were starting for your province most weeks, you didn't really go back anymore. Um, so yeah, until for the first seven years of my uh, career, the AIL was a big part of of my my yearly schedule, and and, and um, I enjoyed it. I, I had some great times um, in the AIL, and, and I, I I'm actually enjoying watching a bit of it now because I think it's on a bit of a, um, a period of resurgence. I think the quality is very good at the moment. A lot of clubs have really embraced it again. A lot of community clubs, good crowds good exposure, good quality. So um, I think that's important as well. I think we can't be just reliant on the on the pro game. I think we need to look and make sure we have a vibrant domestic game as well. Yeah. And that's that's important too, because I remember the time of, say, maybe the 2019 World Cup, there was actually a debate about, oh, it's a team full of Leinster Schools players. But when you dug deep into it, you had the likes of Niall Scannell, Jack Carthy, mm. Bobby Henshaw. A lot of them would have actually played AIL at some point. So it is... Like there is still an importance for it. It's not as big, but even you know Jamie Osborne got his breakthrough AI yeah. before he got in. Like there's there's obviously, and I I spoke to this with Jack Carty 
like there's even for him in the Connacht setup, they can still see the importance in the young players playing AIL every week. Absolutely. And uh, speaking to Elias Sullivan, his coach on Buccaneers, and he he's built up a very good relationship with Andy Friend. And there's a big push to get those academy players back as often as they can to play for, for Connacht clubs. And you know, Eddie said when he gets four or five of them back, you know, he has a good chance of winning. That's how much um of a difference they make. Um, but it's also for them, there's been obviously less A games now because of I suppose uh, the financial situation, you know, obviously it started off in COVID, you couldn't travel, but um, I think now clubs are realizing it's quite, you know, it, do they have the money to, to, to fly teams over to play A games? I don't think, I think we might, the Irish provinces might, but the, the, the Welsh and, and the Scots and, um, and a lot of English clubs certainly don't. So that that's going to become less of an avenue to play players. And, um, you know, I think the AIL is, is, is absolutely perfect. And, it gives those players the the understanding as well and appreciation of you know what non professional players you know commit and sacrifice to um to play on a Saturday for the for the local club and you know um and I think that sense of that understanding of re- what reality is as well and how fortunate you are to be a pro player where all you concentrate on is your your training um is actually a good thing for any pro young particularly but any pro. Yeah, and you mentioned Eddie there, and I, I know a few of the lads in that books team. I would went to school with a few of them, and you know, to, to get someone like him in, like the the wealth of experience is it's undeniable. And then you've Andy Friend with with Connacht if they're in the academy, and when you went when you came back to Leinster, then like Michael Checker was there as coach, and mm. to some degree, slightly unproven. Obviously, he's proven himself since he's one of the best coaches of the pro era. Was there? I'm trying to think how to put it now. Was there a moment where you realised that checks was something different to what you had before and could bring you to the next level, which he ultimately did? Yeah, I think um, I think he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder um, or point to prove. So I think he felt he um, he didn't belong. Or sorry, he might have felt there was a perception he didn't belong because he didn't play for the Wallabies or he hadn't coached. The Ward has um, before he came to uh, to Leinster, but I think it was a very astute hiring by Mick Dawson. You know, he saw something in, in Michael Cheka, um that wasn't on his CV; it was potential. And I think we we could see this drive, this ambition, this attractive way to play the game. He had a he had a very positive philosophy around attacking rugby. David Knox, who, who we brought with him. It was a was a genius backs coach, a bit of a maverick, a bit of a lunatic, but um, a genius backs coach. And together they had us playing phenomenal rugby. You know um, that Toulouse quarter final away, where I think Hickey scored. You know when we let, went from our own twenty two, um, we had Felipe Cantaponi, we had Brian Driscoll. Um, you know we were a team geared towards attack. The problem was that, and Checker realised this over those first couple of years that. We played outstanding rugby, you know, from September to April. But then when it came to knockout stages, um, we didn't really have the tools to play a different way. And unfortunately, a lot of those finals or semifinals are won by teams who play the percentages, teams who have a solid set piece, um, teams who can grind you down and don't make errors. So um, he, and again, this is 
what I love about Czech is that he had the, I suppose, the, the intelligence, the understanding, the lack of, I suppose, ego to start to taper, you know, that that away, that that desire to to be seen as this brilliant attacking coach, to actually creating a team who were better equipped to win trophies. So, obviously, 2008, we won the Magnus for the first time. Under his under his uh, tenure, I think Matt Williams had won a Celtic Cup, um, if, 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 if I'm correct. And then, yeah. of 2009, we won um, we won the, the champion or the Heineken Cup again, uh, beating Leicester in the final. So, um, I, I think he was a perfect coach for what we wanted. I also think, to be honest, the board deserve massive credit because there was a bit of a push on 2006, 2007 to let him go. You know, um, from fans, from people in in the in the organization, um, but by giving him that longevity, by giving him that fourth year, um, you know, he was eventually it all came to fruition. So I think that was, you know, there was there was really smart people, uh, um, in the board level of of Leinster who saw, uh, okay, he was volatile. You know, he wasn't great with the press sometimes. He was tough on players, but he was the man that we needed to. Um, to get us over the line, and that's kind of the the right place, right time thing that always seems to come around when it, when people when people like yourselves talk about Cheka because he did bring you to that next level in terms of rather ironically for an Australian Super Rugby coach, the Cup Rugby side of things mm. is where he started to excel, and like I suppose it's probably the thing that you were compared to Munster for because they were starting to get over the line. Did he ever touch on that with you about? you know, well, Munster are doing it, you're more than good enough, or was it a case of just focusing on yourselves? Nah, look, he, he talked about Munster a lot, but it wasn't about we're going to copy them, it was um, how we have to beat them, how we have to show them, you know, we're as tough as them, tougher than them. Um, no, he wouldn't have He wouldn't have ever used Munster as, uh, as an example of how to play, to be honest, even though obviously... You know, I'm not. I'm not saying he didn't. He didn't mirror them. I mean, a lot of the stuff around the breakdown. Once there were the masters of breakdown, we put a huge focus on that. Look at yeah. So I'm sure he and his coaches were analyzing what they do, how they play. But he never said to us, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna copy them." It was always, "Look at this is this is how we're gonna play." Um, so he framed that very very well. I think I spoke to someone last week who is working with him in Argentina at the moment, and. Apparently, like, and I know this by him. I mean, his his desire to evolve, his desire to learn, his desire to be at the cutting edge, um, is the same now as it was in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Uh, and he has he had a reputation as being this just you know um super aggressive, um win at all costs coach, which I think he'll always have because that's the way he is. But he's very modern. He's very modern. Um, he's very uh. For, he's a real growth mindset, and I think that's why he's you know he's still competing. He's going to be going to this World Cup with a, with a chance with Argentina. You know they they've um, they've turned a the corner. Um, he's obviously been to a World Cup with Australia. Um, you know he's experienced. He won a Super Rugby title with the Waratahs. He's worked in in NRL, um, and he's obviously worked coaching um, the Lebanese uh, rugby league team as well, uh, which is obviously you know um, close to his heart. So. Um, yeah, he's phenomenal. Stade Francais, top fourteen. So he's he's a very very capable uh, person, uh, super intelligent, and um, yeah, I, I think it's it's great to see him still still competing at the highest level. It is, and to think that someone like that came from getting his chance in Ireland is 
Yeah. You could say it's bittersweet because, well, what if he got the Ireland job in 08, say, after Eddie O'Sullivan bombs? Mm. Like, that's, that's just hypothetical. But then, from a personal point of view, then, that era where you started to kick on, that's where you won the majority of your Ireland caps. Yeah. Would you say that that's where, maybe it's just the fact that Leinster were going places, but do you think there was anything personal development as a player that he helped you with or other coaches at the time? Yeah, no, I think that bit of a best rugby there. I think I matured. I think I started to be better at dealing with probably, you know, poor poor throws or, or mistakes. I, I I became better at dealing with those in games and not letting it affect my performance. Um, I was just maturing physically as well, you know, so I, was, I went there at 25, I think. You know, uh, twenty six. So I was just starting to hit my peak as a, a for a front rower, um, and I also was surrounded by brilliant players. And I realised, Jesus, this is an unbelievable opportunity here. And and brilliant players also put you into space more. You know, you have more ball. Um, so everything was aligned. So I like I, I do think it's quite easy to play for Leinster compared to playing for other teams because of the quality of what's around you plus that cohesion that they have. Um, in some ways you can often look better than you actually are and, and I think I benefit from that so um, yeah there was, I think there was a lot of factors that led to me playing my best rugby there and a lot, all of them weren't down to me to be honest I think um, uh, some of it was down to just the circumstances and the timing and that's and like as I said they were a very easy team to play with and obviously Leinster pushed on won the Heineken Cup in 09 and pretty somewhat dramatic fashion apart from the, the semi-final mm. you know with Bloodgate and then you know Johnny doing his thing in, in the 9 final was there because you've spoken about Johnny on an interview with um, Jim Hamilton sorry almost forgot um, like was there ju- just to focus on him for a minute like was was that the season where you knew or did you always know there was something different about him Look, I think that's the season that he confirmed it but you know, obviously getting that chance. Um, he played a lot the previous year, to be fair to him, um, and was it was good, was really good, you know. And and I think he was hurt; he wasn't getting as much game time um, in, in the latter end of that season because he felt he deserved it. And I think we all believed in him. You know, he'd 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 been um, a big part of us winning the Magnus, being a big part of us that year. Um and but he wasn't really seen as being and Felipe Cotaboni was the was the star ten you know he was the one who was always playing when he was fit pretty much um and had you know an unbelievable amount of talent and and charisma as well and he was proven he was already a a seasoned international at that stage and he obviously signed for Toulon um that summer and but then he got injured in that semi final in Crow Park and and Johnny got got a chance to. I suppose steer us home, which is you know a, a huge opportunity for someone for such a young ten to play in a semi final in Crow Park in front of eighty thousand people against Munster, the champions. Um, we were massive underdogs, and he he got us in position to win the game. You know, it wasn't the case of talking ten minutes at the end. When he came on, the game was live, and uh, then obviously in the semi final and the final, in, uh, he kicked the drop goal, kicked his goals played very well again as a youngster so I, I I think as a young 10 we felt he had the ability we felt he had the mentality and then he showed us very young I mean to win a European Cup um, for your province for, to win a first European Cup for your province um, so young 
in the circumstances as well of, of kind of having been a sub and then come back in because of injury and not really having much time to um, to deal with that. And, you know, like I think the final was two weeks after the semi-final. Um, there was massive pressure. Obviously, Leinster's first ever Heineken Cup final. Um, there was a huge amount of distraction around the place and he he, didn't, he never let it get to him. So, so I think, I, I felt he had it anyway, to be honest, but he always, like, I you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of players that we've all played with or seen that we think are going to go on and do great things, but for whatever reason, they don't. Um, so it was nice to see Johnny confirm, I suppose, the the belief I had in him. Yeah, and that's that belief was was repaid, and we'll get on. We might touch on the World Cup at the end of brief time, but you you retired then the year after you won the Heineken yeah. Cup. But I think you lost to was it Toulouse in that to lose away in the semi final. Yeah, we yeah. lost to lose away, and Munster lost away to Biarritz the same day. Yeah, sorry, I mean, the next day, and both. Both packs got eaten alive. I remember both scrums were were eaten alive, and it kind of uh, it forced the IRFU, or sorry, it, it added to the pressure in the IRFU to do something about probably front row development and scrummaging in Ireland. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a it was a bad day, all right. Yeah, I, I actually after that, I think I think Munster signed two or three props over the next yeah. two or three years after that because they brought in Van de Preya, BJ Bota about two years later. So it, it there was definitely that you know. Being young at the time, I wouldn't have noticed, but it's it's a good point. But you're, he bowed out that day, and like mm. still getting to a semi final, losing to Toulouse. You know, I think there was a few lads injured that day as well. Like I'm yeah. still, you're still going places. Um, and you said like on on the podcast with Jim Hamilton that you you've no ill will towards the game. Does ending the career on a high, obviously it's concussions and injury issues in the final season. But does ending on a high help that as opposed to, you know, say if you're going through a rebuild, it's, you know, it can be tough. Yeah, no, look at that. I think I ended on a loss, but I was still at the kind of the the, the, the pinnacle of, of European rugby. So just to like, I had spent seven years uh, um, in a Challenge Cup before I got to Leinster. Um, and... <laughs> The Challenge Cup, you know, there's obviously just, there's the odd glamour fixture, but there's a lot of us. Like I was, I played in Stout Bucharest in in in, uh, in Romania, you know, in in the Challenge Cup. Um, I played in, um, in in Russia in NC. So you know, there's a lot of, and sometimes in the French when you play the French clubs in the Challenge Cup, they have zero interest as well. To be fair, um, and so you know, you imagine playing a a Challenge Cup game on a on a Saturday afternoon and sports ground at the time and for the 1500 people because it wasn't against a, a big team and then you go home and you're watching Munster play you know um, Munster play Toulon uh, or Leinster play Leicester you know what I mean it was it was where I always wanted to be and like, I remember actually um, I was playing for Connacht the first year first or second year professional rugby um, I think it was first year actually and Munster got to the final and twicking against Northampton and we went in cars, uh, three cars from Connacht, three, uh, 12 professional players, drove from Galway, got the ferry to Hollyhead, drove to London and went to the game. Uh, and like, it wouldn't happen nowadays. I mean, I think, you know, if no matter who was in a pro- final, you wouldn't have players from the other team going. But that was the whole beauty of it, this, this attraction. And, 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 and like we would have been thinking, right, we can, you know, we can play in this someday. Um, so, yeah, I've always loved the European Cup. Um, so you know to be to finish in a, in a semi final, 
and obviously we lost, but it was still right, I want to bow out now. Um, you know, I, I I've kind of got to where I want uh, I want to get to. Obviously, I would love to do a couple more years, but the, my body was 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 um was in bits, so I had no, I had no real choice. So yeah, I walked away and walked away without many massive regrets. So so many better players than me had shorter careers or um or didn't get to achieve kind of what they deserve to and I, I, I probably overachieved so um, yeah I, I was okay with it yeah and it's it's funny you mention Challenge Cup again because in my notes I have it that when you won the when you got to the Challenge Cup final and won it with Sale that final was played in Oxford yeah which is a bit of a and that's a far removed from the rugby even that is Toulouse like you know yeah, yeah and also like it's going to be you know now it's it's a double header so this year it's in the Viva um, and you'll get a big crowd Last year in Marseille it was a good final. You know, on a Friday night, um, you get you know big, big crowd of people who go to both games, and it's a it's a proper, it's a proper event. Whereas back then, to be fair, it has come on a long way, but back then it was it was very much just you felt it was just ticking boxes, you know. And it was kind of to a degree because I I think so maybe when I was growing up it was in two different cities until maybe yeah. ten years ago or there thereabouts. I know when next yeah. to one that was in Dublin and before yeah. that I, I don't really remember but you anyway you retired with Leinster after that year of you know kind of being injury hippie you didn't you'd know ill will as you said no. and then you go into Grenoble of all places how how did that come about because even probably until you went there nobody in Irish rugby knew, really knew yeah. much about Grenoble yeah, would you believe it? it's it's how a lot of recruitment and and um, moves happen? It's through a personal relationship. So a guy I played with in Connacht, Andrew Farley, he was captain of Connacht actually, an Australian guy, um, very good player, very good liner caller. He had left Connacht to go to Grenoble uh, about three years before that, before I went there. Um, I had already left Connacht. I'd, I'd gone to Leinster, but he, I think, a year later, he went. Grenoble or maybe two years later he went to Grenoble and um, I was looking for an opportunity in France and you know I, uh, difficult because I don't speak French or didn't didn't speak French and um, it's very recruitment over there is very much you need to kind of have an in so um, I touched base with Andrew and he said look I think we're they were second in Pro D2 at the time and over there at the time top goes up automatically second place five three place four um, and then the, the, there's a final um, to see who the other team to go, goes up was. There's two teams down automatically. It's now changed. Um, and they were second, a long way clear of Bordeaux, who were fifth. Um, they were called Begla Bordeaux at the time. And it's still the same. It's, it's Union Begla Bordeaux now, but it's the same club or same entity. Um, and so they were very confident they were going to win that home draw, Stadley de Guerre. Um, against a team that they'd finished 14, 15 points ahead of in the league. Uh, so he's like, look, if, if we go up, you know, there'll be more budget. They may look to add another member of staff. Um, but at the moment, in Pro D2, we wouldn't. We already had, they already had a director of rugby, a forwards coach, a backs coach would be pretty much all those Pro D2 teams would have unless they were very wealthy. Um, and they lost. They lost that. And I remember watching it on a stream um, they lost that semi-final at home and it was chaos I mean you know they'd blown a, a great opportunity they'd lost at home in the semi-final and I was like well that's it there's no chance they're going to need me now because they're stuck in Pro D2 but in the review the director of Sportif was like look at you know I think we need to add something I think 
Um, we could do it bringing in somebody as a consultant. Um, and I don't have a huge amount of money. So anyway, he, he, Andrew said to him, look, if you're looking for a consultant, uh, Bernard Jackman might be interested. Sent through my CV, had a couple of Skype calls, um, interviews with him, and eventually he said, look, I like I like what you can do, you know, um, would you come over for pre-season? And in fairness in France, in pre-season, uh, it's very short. It's about four weeks because top, the, the season is so long. By the time we give the players five or six weeks off, they only really have a three or four week block to prepare for the following season because uh, they play so many games. And um, so anyway, I said, look, it's, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, um, I, so I went over, I think, for four weeks in a block, implemented a new defensive system. Um, and then he said, look, I really like this. Um, can, we, can you do some stuff first? Uh, virtually over the course of the season can you cut up the games can you send us clips can you do previews can you come over you know as often as you can or we can afford during the year um but if you get promoted i promise you it'll be a full-time contract there for you so anyway we shook hands on a deal for the following season on the basis that if we got up uh, i would go and if we didn't go up i was i was i was out and uh, thankfully we got a flyer for the season and we were promoted I think by March so with, with maybe six or seven games to go we were mathematically um, clear so I knew that I was going over so moved over full time that year uh, that summer and yeah we we, we had a, an unbelievable experience very small town uh, city same size Cork so it's not very small but it's a smallish town um, uh, city and you know rugby isn't really the priority there it's everyone in the winter they ski you know, because we're we're in the French Alps, um, but because of the novelty of top fourteen rugby, which they hadn't had for about twelve years, and they've been they've been sent down. They had been in the top sixteen back in the day, um, but they got into financial trouble about twelve or thirteen years before I went back. I went there, and they got relegated two divisions. So they because they went into administration, they got sent to federal one. So yeah. effectively, what happened then was. Because they'd been in financial disarray and it nearly killed the club, the president and the board were very um, shrewd and very safe around spending. So um, we 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 didn't spend what we didn't have, which isn't the case really in a lot of French clubs. So it was quite difficult in terms of budgetary constraints. And then actually, eventually, we ended up getting into financial trouble ourselves in my last year because our sponsor died and he was given us three million a year, but he. Uh, it turned out there was another two million that was coming in from companies that were doing business with him. So really, it was a loss of five million, and we ended up having to ask the players to take a pay cut in September. Um, a lot of them refused to take the pay cut, so we ended up having to sell players. And there's a value on players in France. There's a, there's a kind of unofficial transfer market, so we sold a lot of very good young French players uh, and some non-French. We sold Paul Villemse to Montpellier, who's now the French or as captain France um, to try and make up those losses and it had a massive effect on us um, on the field it's not like in COVID where everyone was taking pay cuts because everyone understood there was a macro problem um, we were the only club who were struggling other clubs were actually you know trying to spend more so it was a, it was a horrible situation to be in but such a life and um, yeah it was, a, it was a great experience overall my family we had a great time Um all my family used to come on holidays and ski, come watch matches. Um, my extended family and my wife's family. Um, 
kids are bilingual now. I, I have decent French, although I speak with a Carlo accent. And uh, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it could be worse. It could speak like Trevor Ren and he speaks with a with a Barnall accent, but uh, nah, they can understand me, which is which is half the battle. And it, it, as long as it was a good experience, because obviously you swap the, I suppose, the the pristine uh, picturesque Alps for Newport and the Dragons not long afterwards. And that was, again, you're talking about financial difficulties at Grenoble. We know the financial difficulties at Wales now. And it was the case kind of when you were there as well, like it was. Yeah, I think, look, at it, it was a bad choice for me, to be honest. I mean, um, and I was swayed, to be honest, by Gatland. Uh, so Gatlin rang me and said, look, at WRU have bought the Dragons. They haven't got a pot to piss in and haven't had for the last seven or eight years. They actually closed down their academy because it was costing money. So, and it was actually going to go into receivership. Um, there's a vote. Uh, um, there's a vote whether, because a lot of the members didn't want to accept the WRU takeover, to be fair. Um, but there was no one else who wanted to buy them. And they'd been for sale for years. Um, so it came to a, a vote and uh, WRU offered to take them over. A lot of people had to walk away with, with not, without getting paid for money they'd borrowed, they'd loaned the club, etc., or the region. Or, and um, yeah, it was accepted just about really. And um, you know, Warren said to me, "Look, they've had nothing. They've had nothing for about ten years." Um, at the start of professionalism, they had actually quite a bit of money. They signed Gary Tyson and Percy Montgomery, and there was some great nights in in, in Rodney Parade under the Newport. Um, name and actually ironically the or coincidentally the Tony Brown who was one of the big benefactors he passed away this week um, so Lord of mercy on him but it, it was it was under the expectation of the fact of you know the WRU potentially won four regions uh, like the IRFU and I thought having played under the IRFU model here where you know, everything is geared towards stability and and making the team better. Uh, I was like, well, that's going to be a great time to go into Welsh rugby where, you know, you're owned by the WRU. Surely they want to provide a, the best possible environment for for the players under their care, you know, especially if they want to buy the other, take over the other three eventually. Um, they're going to want to do right by the by the one that they own. Um, and I think that, look, I actually believe that best intentions were there to do something with it um but it became obvious when i got there um that there wasn't that hunger desire to actually invest in the dragons at all um they took them over pretty much just to stop just because they, they felt four was important and uh, to have four regions but i think now if they had a time again they wouldn't have, they would they would go with three that's pretty clear that they want to go to three regions but they made the decision then that they, they couldn't go to f- uh, three. At first, Gatlin was it, it was in favour four, um, but the way the WRU is set up for them to give me more money, the other three regions were going to kick up and demand the same. So to give the Dragons a million more um, would have meant costing the drag costing the WRU four million, and they weren't keen to do that. So it just became a case of. Um, Part of my mandate was was to pick all Welsh players. So, you know, realistically, if you're going to if you're going to probably if I was going to do that again, I would have said, oh, I need to be able to bring in some some non Welsh, you know, who can give us some stability. Particularly if you want me to play a lot of young Welsh, um, but they said, no, 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 just get rid of all non Welsh. Um, so effectively, we ended up being all all non Welsh, 
Um, but without really the budget to, to put together a squad that can compete with the Scarlets, the Ospreys, or Blues. And actually, but ironically, they actually have way more money now than they had. They think they spent about roughly six million now, whereas we were spending 3.5. But they're still finding it hard to compete with, you know, Cardiff at the weekend had a good result, beat Sale. Scarlets beat the Sharks the week before. And um, and Ospreys were very competitive against Saracens, whereas I think the Dragons lost by seventy to, to Glasgow. So um, it's a strange one, strange region, really. Um, there's not a lot of drive to change things, which is a surprise because you go into most teams who are successful or unsuccessful, and that's one thing you have is this, you know, a, a desire to change it. But um, it is what it is. Welsh rugby's in a very bad place, and I think. I certainly felt it and I told the WRU and didn't like that that what they were doing was madness across the board. Um, but because Wales were doing well under Gatland, they wouldn't listen and now it's all, uh, like everything, uh, it takes a long time for a big ship to turn but once it's turned the wrong way, uh, which it is now, um, it's going to take them a long time to get it back right. You saw the under-20s are, are bang average. Um, the regions are, you know, not none of the regions are in the top eight. Cardiff or Scarlet will qualify for Europe because this year, they're guaranteed a spot, but you know, long term, they they'll be way off qualifying for European Cup, and I don't see the national international team changing things for a while. When the likes of Win Jones, Falatau, Bigger, um, Halfpenny, etc., Liam Williams, when they retire, there isn't the players there to to step up. It's funny because I. I was going to say, do you think Dragons are in a better place now when you're on about them? And it does feel like just on paper that they are. But as well, the Dragons have brought in lads like JJ Hanrahan. Mm. And there's a centre who's Yeah, named... CEO Tompkinson. Yeah, yeah. CEO Tompkinson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. lads like that who they help to drive standards a bit. And like you do need lads like that as well to yeah. help things. And you look at even Cardiff the other day. Um, I watched it. It was a fantastic mm. game. And obviously there was an emotional element to that. But having yeah. Josh Adams there and having Priestland and Evans and all these, that, that helps. Like, that helps in the long run. Like, Munster and Leinster would never have gotten where they were without Jim Williams or, you know, Rocky Elsom or lads like yeah, that, Nathan Hines. And, like, yeah. is that where, like, is is there still a pushback from Welsh rugby and that's what's holding them back? Or is it more of a case of just, we just don't have the money to bring in yeah, anyone to help things? No, no, now they don't have the money. They're, like, they're talking about going down to, they have to get down to 4.5 million salary caps as quickly as possible. Like when I was there, Scarlets were spending 8 million. Um, so like that's going to be some, um, you know, uh, job to get a squad that can compete. You know, so, and then, and, and they're saying, I read an interview with a guy, Malcolm Wall, who's the chairman of the PGB uh, Professional Games Board, and he said, oh, you know, we expect to have two teams in the top eight within the next three years. And you're going, well, that would be a miracle. You know, unless you've got a plan to do something very different than everybody else by cutting, you know, budgets. And you see Joe Hawking, you see Exeter might have 10 Welsh players next year um, because they've come in and picked, you know, some of the, some of the best um, young talent um, that's there so that's going to be the problem now and the lure of the Welsh jersey isn't as good as as, as, good as it was because um, the team aren't aren't necessarily successful there's a lot of um, negativity towards rugby and Wales at the moment so now you're going to see guys you know Josh Adams if he was off contract would probably be gone to Leon um, you know Liam Williams is looking at Japan 
Um, so they're going to lose their better players. And I don't, I said, if you've, you've seen the under 20s the last couple of years, like I have, um, you start, if it was Ireland, you'd say, oh, Jesus, you know, it could work out okay because we've had two or three super crops of youngsters who can step up. But yeah. based on what we've seen of their underage system, they're miles off. So um, it's worrying times. It's worrying times for Welsh rugby. And it's, it's worrying times for rugby in general. Like the last podcast that I recorded here was looking back in the Six Nations and we had a Welsh guest on. And he echoed a lot of that. Like as a fan, it is, yeah. it is a worry at the moment. And obviously English rugby and the Premiership, they have their issues. And again, as we said at the, at the top of the show, it goes back to the fact that Ireland and France are very well run. And aside from that, it's kind of a bit, it's still a bit iffy, you know, it's not... Yeah, it's not smooth sailing for for the other nations. Yeah, and like even a, a country like England, who we probably admired, we've admired the I think four hundred thousand you know registered uh, players or adult players, um, you know these, these clubs with massive history: Bath, Leicester, Northampton, Harlequins, etc. Um, and yesterday's newspaper had the Marcus Smith and Atoje or are probably going to go abroad after the World Cup because they can't get the salaries in, in the UK that in England that that they can elsewhere in Japan or France. So and and at the moment they wouldn't be eligible for England, you know. So um I never I don't think I ever would have thought that England wouldn't be able to keep their best players in England, whether that was because of a club contract or whether that was because of the match fees, which should obviously are massive in England, or some kind of central contract or coke co-funded contract but at the moment that's where England are at and obviously they've lost two clubs Wasps and Worcester um, there's other clubs Newcastle they say are very close to potentially going under um, London Irish has been for sale for quite a while there's rumours of an American investment but you know until that's done who knows but um, it's uh, you saw I don't know if you saw but Leicester had to get 13 million of private funding over the last month to just and pay off some debt, so it, it's a it's in a very very precarious position. English club rugby, um, and yeah, Ireland and France are are the most stable and most settled at the moment. And obviously, France will France rugby and France will get another boost from this World Cup. You know, um, yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be massive um, across the, the country, and also in areas where soccer is is the number one sport. It's gonna it's going to drive interest and, and France now have a team who, you know, on paper and, and on form can be very competitive in that. And, and that could be another huge driver of, of the, the growth and, and, and interest in rugby in France. And, and that would be like, if we remove Ireland from the equation, France doing well at the World Cup and a home World Cup, it would be great for them. But we obviously want Ireland to do well and, the World Cup, we're in this period now where the World Cup is the elephant in the room. No one wants to talk about it because we don't want to get ahead of ourselves as a lot of... No, we can talk about it left to run. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. Like, it's the next competition yeah. for us. It's not... I can understand fella, fellas or ladies saying, oh, before the Six Nations, oh, let's just concentrate on the Six Nations. But now it's it's our next international competition. So um, I'll forgive you. We can we can talk about it. Fair enough. We'll, we'll go into it. So you said on... And I'll plug it again because it is a brilliant yeah. interview with Jim Hamilton. Thank you. You said that Ireland could, should win the World Cup or could or whatever. Do you want to go into that? And yeah, say... I, I think I, I, look, I, I think we have a phenomenal chance of winning the World Cup because we're number one in the world. We're not there by fluke. Um, we've gone to New Zealand and won 
two tests out of three tests down there. Um, and I think that's that's massive for us. And I know the World Cup is is actually in Europe as well, which is even a bigger help. But just by by being able to tick off that milestone, I think is huge. And I know 2003, leading into that World Cup that England won, they set a target of beating all the Southern Hemisphere teams, you know, on en route to to the World Cup, so that they had that psychological advantage of having beaten them once. And um, at that time. Southern Hemisphere were way stronger than Northern Hemisphere. Like it was a massive achievement for England to be able to to beat them because they were the superpowers. That's flipped now. I mean, now the strength is is in not by a massive amount, but Ireland and France are number one, number two in the world. Um, and I don't doubt that South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, um, less so Argentina, but they could they could potentially win it. They're they're not we're not million miles better than them. But we are we deserve to be talked about um, in their company, and uh, the way this Irish team seemed to be set up in terms of the environment, how much players enjoy it, um, the connections that Farrell has worked on, um, the leadership group, which is now not just Peter Manny, Connor Murray, Johnny Sexton, you know the likes of Doris and Ringrose are now a big part of that. So you've got. You know uh, that middle generation. I know Ringo was a bit older than Doris, but you've got the, that middle group in terms of experience, and you've guys like Mac Hansen, um, you know James Lowe, who are match winners in their in their own right. Um, you've got depth. You know McCluskey was excellent for us in round in round one and round two, but may not go to the World Cup. You know because of Bundy and and Robbie, um, and the fact Jimmy O'Brien can play you know multiple positions or or, or Larmer. Um, so they may get that spot ahead of him, even though I, I feel you know he'll be very unlucky if he if he didn't go. Uh, hookers, you know, we've got at least three that we're, we know um, are very strong. Tight end prop, you know, Tom O'Toole, you know, is third choice, but showed enough during the Six Nations to go right. You know, if that happens, Finney or Tig, we're not we're not completely done. Um, Healy coming off the bench as a hooker. Josh Van Fleer is a thrower, you know, um, James Ryan being back in great form, uh, Conan off the bench, Ryan Baird's, the, you know, Ryan Baird, um, his form, like he could be, he could, you know, take this work up by, by storm, you know, and, and, and like three months ago, he wasn't even, you weren't sure he was going to be in the match day 23. So there's a lot of things in our favour, you know, Sexton's understanding and, and Ross Burns probably, not, I'm not saying Ross Burns is the same as Sexton, but, um, he has big game temperament, and he's going to get, you know, a lovely run of games now. Um, in in his own right, without looking over his shoulder, without coming off the bench for Johnny in a Leinster jersey at the top level, top level URC, top level, um, Champions Cup, hopefully, to steer his province home and and go into a World Cup on the back of having done that. So. Yeah, also I think tactically we're evolving. We've got a game plan that's not based on power, even though we've lots of power. So yeah, I don't, I don't see any reason. The only reason we would, I would say, we wouldn't do well at the World Cup is if we actually do what a lot of fans do and put our head down and go, Jesus, we shouldn't, we shouldn't expect to do that in here because we haven't in the past. And I don't think, I don't think this playing group, you know, all the other World Cup failures are irrelevant except the little bits we can learn from them um, in terms of how we need to prep better. And I, I think that, you know, Easterby and Farrell were part of the last World Cup 
prep. So I say prep, I mean the preseason for the World Cup, which is obviously coming up this summer. Jason Cowman, who's the head of performance, was was the SNC. Um, you know, Vinnie Hammond was there. So they have all the data um, from what they did previous World Cup uh, and some some of the World Cups before that. So um, I think there's a lot of stuff we can learn, but I, I, I'm very confident, very hopeful. And that's I, I'm I'm confident myself. Um, it's just a case of not wanting to echo it yeah. too too soon. But look at you, you like well, yeah, me me saying it, you're putting yourself up there to be to be be shot at. But uh, like the way it is, I genuinely believe. I'm not saying it to, to try and get headlines. I genuinely, you know, this this team have continued to impress. Even the England game where we didn't play well, like we still got the bonus point. You know, um, yeah. we. We have a we have a nice way of being able to score tries um, uh, when we get field position quite easily. To be fair, and we're very good at getting field position. So um, yeah, it's a lot of there's a lot of things pointing in the right direction at the moment. And that's and that's the thing. It is probably the most rounded Irish team. And I think I said mm. this last time where I felt like you know you look at that England game where they get a bonus point. They almost got a bonus point in every game. The last mm. team to do that was the English team in 03. You know, yeah. if you want to look at omens, I know they actually did in Ireland, were very close and didn't. But if it's because it is very competitive, is there any, anyone that would stand out to you that you're saying, you know, no one's talking about? Because everyone's talking about France. So we can kind of park France. Do you feel like New Zealand, South Africa, Australia? Yeah, I'm, I can't. Wait, I think I think South Africa are going to be class. I think they are um, the the type of the Razzie plays the quality he has the bomb squad the power the kicking game um it's suited to knock out rugby world cup rugby they've won it and um, that blitz defense you know the nina bar defense you know um makes it very hard to execute and to play against as particularly under pressure like so pressure in a, in a world cup semi-final final um quarterfinal is ramped up so a lot of players will will go into their shell a little bit and that, and that you know not throw that pass or maybe not be able to um, uh, get as much width and depth as they want because they want to get caught behind the gain line and that South Africa feed off that so South Africa are a massive threat because they have the quality the coaching staff have done it before and I think you'll see them you'll see them at their best for this World Cup um, I'm fascinated by New Zealand. I can't wait to see New Zealand in this rugby championship because New Zealand historically have gone into World Cups, you know, um, playing the best rugby, number one in the world, looking untouchable. And that hasn't always led to getting across the line. But this World Cup, unless there's a big change in the rugby championship, they're going to go in a little bit of flux. You know, there's obviously a change of coaching staff happening after the World Cup, um, a lot of pressure on Foster. Joe's in there now. He wasn't initially part of the um, the setup. Um, you got some coaches who are going to be part of the next regime. Some who aren't. So it's just a little bit all over the place. But can they can they circle the wagons and and yes, I suppose uh, a, a, enough of a plan together to allow them show the ability they have. If they do, yeah, they're going to be there thereabouts. I, I think Australia are fascinating under Eddie Jones. Obviously, it's the, the other side of the draw, the easier side of the draw. They were very good, I thought, against Ireland um, in November. Uh, I thought they were building under Dave Rennie. He, he had horrendous injuries. Um, but I think Eddie Jones could be perfect for them in terms of a short-term cycle. 
all the charisma he has, all the the IP he has around World Cups. Um, and they've got good players. They have they have enough good players to be to be dangerous. So they're probably the ones that you know it would be amazing if Eddie haven't been beaten in what uh, two World Cup finals? Yeah, uh, uh, three yeah. World Cup finals. I think he has was he part of the South African team um, in oh seven? Yeah, oh seven. Yeah, so he's been if he if he could win as if he could win a World Cup with um, with Australia, you know, back whatever. Back where he started, I think that'd be that'd be a fairy tale story. And I, I rate Eddie Jones. I know, I know people in England got sick of him, but I think, um, particularly for a short cycle, one cycle of a World Cup. Now he usually needs four years, but I think he can. Given the injuries Rennie had, that Eddie would benefit from them being back. I think Australia aren't far away. I agree, and I, we've Joe kind of the the armchair punditry talk. We've we've all discussed every team ad nauseum nearly and Australia are kind of the one that jump out because you, you've raised this point in Murray and the lads on, on 42 and different podcasts like we haven't seen Australia fully fit yet but yet they've no. beaten bit, almost everyone and like yeah. if they do get fully fit they are on that easier side of the draw like you can't imagine them having struggles with Wales no. you'd imagine they'll and it, they should beat England or Argentina in a quarter final and then the reality is they could have to play Ireland or South Africa or France or New Zealand or whoever and be in a situation where one of those teams is incredibly tired from a, from a quarterfinal, like what happened to England in the final where they just they almost peaked too soon in the tournament. Like They could get to another final. Eddie Jones knows how to do it, do you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, they're, they're a big danger for me. Big danger. Yeah. And that's... Listen, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it unfolds and hopefully... It will be Johnny Sexton flying back into Dublin Airport with the with the William Webb Ellis Cup in October. Yeah, October. But Bernard, thanks very much now because you I've kept enough for your time and that was a lot of fun. And listen, hopefully, hopefully, Len, you know, for yourself, Leinster do the double and Ireland win the World Cup and whatever else. And I hope everyone at home enjoyed it as well. I will have links to my social media accounts below and yeah, you can follow me down there for articles, opinions, podcasts for URC, Heineken Cup and of course the World Cup. So until next time, folks, thanks very much, Bernard. And until next time, I'll chat to you again. Thanks, Ken. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.